Hi, um, my name is Ellie Booth. I am a major in anthropology and I am a junior and this is my co-host. Uh, I'm Maddie Devon. My major is environmental science and I am also a junior. And we're very excited to introduce our very special guest to this episode of Project Research, Dr. Catherine Chu. Dr. Chu has been a member of the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for four years and is an assistant professor of anthropology specializing in paleoethnobotany, also known as archaeobotany. She is here today to tell us about her research. Hey, Dr. Chu, it is so lovely to have you with us today. Uh, before we talk about your research specifically, will you please explain to our listeners what paleoethnobotany is? <laughs> yeah, I understand. It's, it's quite a mouthful. Um, so just to put it simply, I guess we can kind of break it down into its various components. So paleo coming from the Greek means old or ancient. Um, ethno, of course, means people um, coming from things like ethnography, the study of people's cultures. And then botany, of course, refers to the study of plants. And so really what paleoethnobotany is all about is, um, sorry, my alarm just went off. <laughs> um, the study of the intimate relationship between people and plants in the past. And so those of us that consider ourselves paleoethnobotanists tend to be within the field of archaeology, and we specialize in the study of plant remains from archaeological sites. That's really interesting. And why is this specific branch of archaeology important to the field as a whole? Well, um, so, I mean, one would argue that anything that yields data from archaeological sites is important. But I think what's especially interesting about plants is that it's something that humans have used for such a long time, right? It's made up of, um, it's made up a large proportion of our diet. For example, a lot of the research that we've done on hunters and gatherers has shown that plants actually make up the majority of the caloric intake for people. Um, so we know that uh, without plants, people probably would not have survived. Um, they are the source of a lot of materials for other kinds of purposes like medicine or building houses or fuel. Um, and also beyond that, they have a lot of meaning for people. And so we know even today that people have very special relationships with plants and view a lot of uh, meaning and symbolism to them. And we know in the past as well, people would have had this kind of emotional connection to plants and would have done things like pass them down through, for example, in some societies through the maternal line so that they kept these lineages going on. And we know today that a lot of indigenous peoples continue to curate these um, these plants and maintain that agrobiodiversity that's so important for the survival of many different species. That's really interesting. Uh, so where do you specifically do your research? I um, have done work um, several places around the world, but most of my work is centered in Andean South America. So I consider myself an Andean archaeologist. Um, I've done most of my work in the country of Peru, um, particularly in the coastal region in the northern part of Peru, so a little bit south of Ecuador, um, which is kind of a, just to give you an idea of what it's like, it's um, very desertic. Um, I'd like to compare it to Tatooine in terms of the look of it. Um, and it's an area that I think is really interesting because it's, um, you know, despite the fact that there's very little, I guess, natural plant life, um, it's somewhere that people have managed to grow a lot of plants due to things like irrigation. And is that all the desert area, is that all that makes that area special to your research? 
Um, I wouldn't say that's that's all. Um, I would say it's a very unique area because it's had a very long human history. Um, it's got a lot of very old sites. It's an area where we have um, evidence of early social complexity. So things like monument building, we have early engagement species, so incipient domestication, um, early examples of sedentism. We know that um, the ocean was a very productive resource for these people due to things like the Humboldt Current, um, which created this cold upwelling that led to a lot of um, diversity of uh, fish and shellfish species. So people took advantage of that. And so from those sort of things like this, I guess, early sort of um, push towards what we might consider civilization in terms of complex states and chiefdoms arose. So I think it's a really interesting place to study social complexity. And particularly for me, I'm interested in social inequality and uh, looking at um, hierarchy and looking at the um, difference between status groups. And particularly, I'm interested in, in lower status groups and their role in terms of supporting these larger entities. So do you specialize in an ancient, ancient society in that area, uh, specifically like? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think most of my work has um, pertained to the Moche culture, which um, one could argue is one of the first state level societies. I mean, it's one of those things that people like to debate in the literature. Um, they were arguably somewhat centralized, um, very complex. Um, a lot of inequality. Um, my research typically takes place sort of towards the end of that particular culture. Um, so in terms of chronology, we're looking at around uh, AD 200 to 800, so roughly contemporaneous with the classic Maya, if you're familiar with the Maya of Mesoamerica. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's interesting to me as somebody interested in environment and food waste because this is a time period that was very, um, had a lot of social upheaval. And that's because there was a series of drought events, very devastating drought events, um, three I believe, in the latter part of the cultural sequence. And if you're familiar with how things are in the desert, I mean, if you're trying to do irrigation and suddenly there's no water coming down the Andes, feeding the rivers, which then end up feeding the irrigation canals, then that could be very disastrous as you can imagine. And so we know that there was an impact on agriculture. And we see the sort of social correlates of this kind of um, instability right, as a result of environmental catastrophe. Um, so we believe that that may have led to um, increased tension in societies, perhaps internecine warfare, um, maybe eventually leading to the end of, end of the Moche as a political entity. I think you just answered our next question, so we're going to go ahead and skip to... Oh, okay. That's perfect, actually. Uh, why does paleo-ethnobotanical research resonate with you specifically? Um, I think for me, um, what drew me to archaeology wasn't necessarily the kind of stuff that typically appears in, in National Geographic, for example. I'm just going to use their magazine as an example, right? Those, like, beautiful monuments, um, incredible artifacts, you know, gold, you know, all of those things. Um, it wasn't, I don't know, there's something, there's there's definitely beautiful things, um, but for me it was about the information that we could gather about people. I know like one of the early things that really drew me in was reading a copy of Kids Discover magazine and seeing that, you know, people were studying 
ancient paleo feces, right? The remnants of people's meals and actually taking them apart and seeing what people's last meals were. I mean, that just completely fascinated me. That level of, I guess, intimacy about like the amount of information we could learn despite there being thousands of years between the past and the present was really fascinating for me. Um, so for myself, I think paleoethnobotany and similar fields like let's say so archaeology, which is the study of animal remains, um, are really interesting because there's the potential to study pretty much anybody in a, in a given society, right? So if we study things like this like gold face mask, let's say, for example, um, it's likely that they're only going to belong to a certain class of people. Um, and when you're talking about food, I mean, everybody, everybody eats, everybody leaves things behind. Um, so it gives us the ability to access data from different groups of people that typically are underrepresented, not only in historical narratives, but also archaeological ones. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your current research projects with us? Um, so, you know, besides looking at ancient foodways, which is a lot of what I do um, in the Andes, I also study the domestication of the chili pepper. Um, so the chili pepper, of course, is a plant that's really important to us today. It's the third most consumed spice out there, in case you're interested. Um, <laughs> And it's just this enigmatic plant because it's not a plant that was necessarily domesticated because it had the potential to be a staple crop, right? Let's say, for example, like maize. Um, people eat tons of maize today, and it's very important in terms of making up a lot of our calories. Um, but chili pepper is a plant that you know was used primarily for flavor and, and also for medicine and other purposes as well. But it brought a little bit of color, I guess, to, to people's lives. And so the things people were looking for when they were I guess artificially selecting for certain cultivars are different than what they're looking for when they're domesticating plants like potato or, or wheat or any of those other kinds of, of foods. Um, so for myself, um, you know, I find it really fascinating. Um, I do this mainly through analyzing archaeological seeds um, and looking at changes over thousands of years in terms of morphology. Um, I've worked on this in places like not only Peru, but also currently we have a project ongoing in Mexico to look at capsicum annuum, which is the main chili pepper species that we see in our supermarkets. Um, and yeah, and I think right now we're trying to move on to looking at DNA and looking at um, genetic changes in chili peppers and what um, kinds of traits people were looking for when they were going through the domestication process with these plants. Um, so beyond that, I'm also involved in other projects. Um, we have a student-led project going on right now that's looking at the UA foodscape. Um, so another one of the things that I do is to look at um, the spatialization of activities in the past as well, using technology like geographic information systems. And so we're applying that kind of archaeological perspective to a modern context, and that is the University of Alabama campus. Um, and this particular food landscape. So right now we have that ongoing where we're trying to create a GIS database of the University of Alabama food resources to study things like um, food accessibility, um, using things like the USDA to help us um, look at also instances of insecurity through survey data. Uh, so we're trying to understand I guess, how the food landscape works in the modern present, kind of using archaeological tools, if that makes sense. 
Um, (laughs) And then beyond that, right now, we're also trying to get a project launched right now where we are trying to kind of um, figure out how to use the resources of my lab, which is the Ancient People and Plants Laboratory, uh, to help, um, I guess, groups interested in doing projects surrounding topics like cultural revitalization, um and looking at food justice so for some groups here in the southeast uh, some indigenous groups i think they're interested in um having some way of not only curating their seeds which is you know again that genetic material that's so important um, but also documenting them in some ways and so we're trying to develop a database in conjunction with um, various tribal nations as partners to try to um, create a resource that can be used to help people um, get information to different kinds of seeds that have been important to indigenous peoples. So that's something that we're, we're just on the cusp of starting, but we're hoping to be able to do more projects like that. That's so interesting. I, I find that absolutely brilliant, especially talking about the chili pepper, because I personally love spice, so I am totally indebted to our ancestors that domesticated the chili pepper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's kind of been crazy seeing the level of fandom that's devoted to that particular plant. Like, if you go down the internet rabbit hole, you'll find, like, whole communities of, like, they call themselves chili heads, right? Oh, yeah. Really trading peppers, or, I mean, there's this whole fascinating trend, too, with, like, the consumption of really hot pepper things like YouTube and like you can see people suffering if they're eating um, like the Trinidad scorpion or even now we have pepper X I think which is you know even hotter than a lot of the ones before so the sort of human need to kind of put themselves in kind of interesting as well. It is. I actually I at home grow my own chili peppers and make my own hot sauce but oh. so if- if this is something that's near and dear to my heart. But let's go ahead and move to our le- next pocket of questions. And Dr. Okay. what got you started in research? Is there a time you can tell us about when it just felt right? That this is the research that you wanted to do. Okay, um, I'm, I'm trying to think like when it actually felt right. So my first, I guess, real research project that was maybe beyond some research papers in class, I suppose, was probably in high school. Um, I was taking a a research class that was one of those extra things you could do after your normal day. Um, So it was all, it's for the nerds. Um, And uh, I got to work with a pharmaceutical company to look at uh, this compound called Taxol from the Pacific Yew tree that's used for anti-cancer purposes, like um, against uh, breast cancer. And so, you know, that was uh, probably my, I guess, my fanciest sounding project. Um, I haven't been involved in anything similar since, uh, but it got me interested in looking at you know scientific methodologies and in you know the whole the whole pursuit of knowledge, right? And that's what's so I think enticing about research. It's about the idea that um, you can figure out a way to know things that you don't know beforehand. So it's this like wonderful mind puzzle. And it involves, you know, collaboration, which I'm a big fan of. I love working in teams, and especially in archaeology, which is already a discipline that's kind of um, reliant on teamwork and reliant on a lot of different kinds of individuals and specialists coming together to work towards a common goal. And that was really, really uh, rewarding for me. That's really cool. Um... 
So what is something in your career as a researcher that you are proudest of? Um, you know, it's that's kind of a funny question because you have to, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think back. Um, I also wonder too if I've had long enough of a career to kind of really look back and, and think about things like that. But um, for me, I would say it's not so much about the awards and the recognition for, for the research. It's about the ability to engage with people. And I think for myself, what I find most rewarding is really being able to work with students and like kind of see the way in which they progress through their training. Um, so that's one of the things that I really emphasize in my own lab is you know this apprenticeship and giving people the ability to get involved in research on a very sort of intimate level. So not only doing the grunt work, which of course there's plenty of grunt work involved in research, but also being participants in the, um, I guess, intellectual exercises involved in research, right? So one of the things I really like to do is to give students the ability to also direct research once they feel like they're ready. Um, especially undergraduates. And so for me personally, I found it really rewarding when, when students go through this training process and when they start becoming leaders in their own right, right? and they're writing grants and they're going and they're presenting at conferences and they're publishing papers. And so, yeah, I would say for me, the proudest thing is, I guess, the, um, the students themselves and, and not so much what I, what I produce, even though I'm, I mean, I'm proud of that too, but um, the other stuff is um, more rewarding. That's so, I, I totally can get behind that. That is amazing. Uh, were you interested in research as an undergraduate? Because I know some people in our field were like, oh, I'm a history major and then suddenly fell headfirst into archaeology. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely was interested in research from the get-go. I was one of those fortunate people that knew kind of what she wanted to do when I first went to undergrad. I know that's not the case for a lot of people. Um, and that's simply because I got exposed to anthropology rather early on. Um, and in high school, I got to take classes. So when I was applying to college, I already knew that I wanted to be an anthropologist. Um, so, you know, ever since my, my freshman year, I got involved in various kinds of opportunities. So um, I worked with professors on their projects. I um, went to several internships. I was able and fortunate enough to be able to participate in field work in several locations around the world. Um, and so, you know, by doing that, I was able to kind of dip my feet into the water early on um, and then kind of went to grad school and continued on from there. So I would say, I don't know if I'm necessarily the, the typical case, but um, yeah, I definitely learned a lot early on and um, it helped me in terms of getting me to the, the next step. So are there any tips that you would give to an undergraduate student that is interested in doing research? Yeah, I would say um, if you're interested in doing research, one of the most useful things that you can do is really just reaching out to people who are already in the field. And that includes people who are in the department that you're interested in, I guess, working with, right? So if you're interested in anthropology, then I would definitely suggest getting in touch with any of the faculty. Um, and in our department, I mean, everybody is going and loves talking to students. And even if that's not our necessarily, not necessarily our own specialty, we'll then refer you to another faculty member who perhaps would be better suited for you. Um, and that's, I say that because, you know, mentorship is just really key to being able to do research, right? You need to be able to train um, and you can learn so much from people who have already been through similar things. 
Um, so plenty of people out there are looking for students to get involved with research. Um, I know that there's databases, I think, through the Office of Undergraduate Research that you can find opportunities, but not everyone also advertises there. So just simply talking to a faculty member could be really useful. Then beyond that, there's also resources outside of the university. Um, so that's one of the things I don't think they necessarily teach you oftentimes in, in your undergraduate training is like, there's stuff beyond the university, right? Sometimes you have to sort of take the initiative to go and do your own research and find people who um, could help you or mentor you. So even just reaching out to people that you know, you've know you read, um, sometimes that opens up doors too in terms of getting involved in other projects or uh, applying to internships at different kinds of institutions. For those of us in archaeology, museums are a common one. Um, and yeah, just looking for opportunity to pursue your interests. Um, on campus too, we have a lot of resources like um, the Assure Grant, which um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but I think it's um, Arts and Sciences Support for Research for Undergrad. Um, so that could be something that could be used to fund things like, you know, things you need for, for a research project or even, you know, conference travel to be able to get you there to get that experience of professionalization. So um, really, I guess the, the story is just, um, you know, keep your eyes and ears open. Don't be afraid to go out there and to um, talk to people. I know that's something that's kind of scary too for a lot of students. I know I was afraid of talking to professors when I was an undergrad because they felt, they felt like they were these like, you know, superstars and I was a, a nobody. But really, I mean, people love working with students and all you have to do is just, you know, take the initiative to go and talk to people and you'll find that doors will open. Thank you. I feel like we've like condensed a few questions, which is perfect because we're slightly running out of time. So let's go ahead and uh, skip a couple questions and go to, uh, do you have any opportunities for undergraduate students to work with you? Yes, um, I do. I have a lot of students working with me. I think I have around um, currently maybe 15 in my lab. So my lab, again, is the Ancient People and Plants Laboratory. Um, if anyone's interested, the website is archaeobotany.ua.edu. Um, and we always have a bunch of projects that are in different phases. And so I've got a number right now that are ongoing that have a lot of students involved with, undergraduate and graduate as well. And so anybody is always welcome to come and talk to me. Um, and I'd be happy to either place you in a project or um, you know, we can also discuss developing one as well if that's something that someone is interested in. So yeah, definitely. I'm someone that um, loves working with students, particularly undergraduate students. I like, you know, being involved with um, people very, very early on and being sort of able to see that, that early growth. Um, and one of the things that I'm really interested in, again, is also professionalization, especially at the undergraduate level. So I do encourage my students to do things like go to conferences, to go and talk to people, to go and present the results of their research. And then to also um, publish, that's sort of the eventual goal, right? So to get people a publishing record very early on. Uh, so are you, are you teaching any classes for the upcoming 2021 spring semester or 2022 fall semester? Uh, yeah, so for spring, I'm teaching two courses, um, GIS or Geographic Information Systems for Archaeologists. For any, so for anyone interested in learning um, GIS software or how we study space in archaeology and how that might be um, assisted with uh, computer-based applications, 
that might be a good course. Um, I'm also teaching AMP 103, which is Discoveries in Archaeology. And then in fall, I believe I'm signed up for um, AMP 107, Introduction to Archaeology, and then also Archaeological Ethics, right? So the ethics surrounding the discipline of archaeology. Thank you so much for joining us this uh, morning. And our final question is, uh, if any of our listeners are interested in your research, where can they find you? Um, so you can find me, I think, by doing a Google search would be really easy. <laughs> um, I also have a website, um, that's kchiou.ua.edu, I believe. Um, and you can also email me at my email address, which is klchiou at ua.edu. So multiple ways. I would say you can also just find me easily via Google. Thank you so much. We're really grateful that you came with us today and answered our questions. And thank you so much for sharing about your research. It was great to learn more about you. Thank you to you both as well. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.